death. The consequence and penalty of sin is death. In Genesis 2.17, the declaration by God is literally, dying thou shalt die, or certainly die. In its ultimate sense, dying is separation from God. However, because the sinner is in revolt against God, he does not experience the fear of death as fear of separation from God, but rather as a fear of separation from life. At this point, he is radically schizophrenic. Being in revolt against God, he is in revolt against life, and is governed by a will to death and a masochistic urge to self-punishment. However, having affirmed himself to be his own God, he is intent on living, but he wants life on his own terms. The cause of death is sin, but it is not sin which the sinner, as the ultimate revolutionist, fears, but the consequence of sin, death. Like a child eagerly eating a forbidden dish which will surely make him ill, the sinner enjoys the eating as much as he dislikes the aftermath. But this is not all. He will insist on deceiving himself about the aftermath and will declare that the gates of hell are the doors of paradise. Scripture affirms that the dog turns to his own vomit and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, 2 Peter 2.22. Armenians illustrate this with the story of Nazar Adin, the stupid Turk, who was ridiculed by his fellow workmen for his inordinate love of cucumbers, so that he could not bear to throw even the peels away. To prove them wrong, Nazar Adin tossed the peels on the ground and urinated on them. A little later, having eaten all of the cucumber, he was hungry for more. He picked up a piece of peel, saying, this piece did not get wet, and then another with the same remark, and yet another until all the peels were eaten. The story concludes, and so does a sinner and a fool deceive himself. A common complaint of mentally disturbed people, as well as many criminals, is that they feel dead inside. Since, as Lang has noted, the only real death we recognize is biological death, the reality of this is not noted. According to scripture, however, sin is death. It is spiritual death, in that rebirth is necessary to make the dead man alive before God. It is physical death also, in that the destiny of fallen man includes physical death. The feeling of deadness is thus a part of the human condition and an aspect of the fall. The repeated refrain of Genesis 5 is, and he died. Genesis 5, 5, 8, 11, 14, etc. As against God's creative work, which brought heaven and earth into being and man to life out of the dust of the earth, by man came death, 1 Corinthians 15.21, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned in Adam, Romans 5.12. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Despair is closely related to death in that it is a loss of any hope in life. Lang comments, The schizophrenic is desperate is simply without hope. I have never known a schizophrenic who could say he was loved, as a man, by God the Father, or by the Mother of God, or by another man. He either is God, or the devil, or in hell, estranged from God. When someone says he is an unreal man, or that he is dead in all seriousness, expressing in radical terms the stark truth of his existence as he experiences it, that is, insanity. What Lang refuses to note in all its implications is that the schizophrenic is unloved because he refuses to be loved except on his own terms. Misguided attempts to love a schizophrenic out of his problems often intensify his alienation from reality. Lang's answer as an existentialist is that the individual must strive to be an ontologically secure person. 
the ontologically insecure person encounters three forms of anxiety, engulfment, implosion, and petrification and depersonalization. Engulfment is felt as a risk in being understood, thus grasped, comprehended, in being loved, or even simply in being seen. To be hated may be feared for other reasons, but to be hated as such is often less disturbing than to be destroyed, as it is felt through being engulfed by love. This dislike of being loved characterizes the sensualist women of Scandinavia. In fear of engulfment, the individual retreats into a psychological isolation. With respect to implosion, Leng states that reality is the persecutor, by threatening to impine on the life of the schizophrenic. Impinement does not convey, however, the full terror of the experience of the world as liable at any moment to crash in and obliterate all identity, as a gas will rush in and obliterate a vacuum. The individual feels that, like the vacuum, he is empty. But this emptiness is him. Although in other ways he longs for the emptiness to be filled, he dreads the possibility of this happening because he has come to feel that all he can be is the awful nothingness of just this very vacuum. Any contact with reality is then in itself experienced as a dreadful threat because reality, as experienced from this position, is necessarily implosive, and thus, as was relatedness and engulfment, in itself a threat to what identity the individual is able to suppose himself to have. Petrification and depersonalization are the generalized fear of death. What Lang has described is the sinner and his fear of God and of death. What Lang offers, however, is to give the sinner an inner security in his rebellion and the psychological ability to maintain his revolution without collapse. The implication is that an unsuccessful sinner will be converted into a successful one. All of history records the failure of such attempts. Since sin leads to a radical isolation of man from God and of man from man, man fears everything which can in any way infringe on his withdrawal into himself. By withdrawing into himself, the sinner plays at being his own god and his own universe. As even Lang noted, love is a threat to that attempt at godlike autonomy, and as a result, sex is substituted for love. But sex itself involves a dangerous relationship and dependence, and is thus feared. As Rollo May noted, The relationship between death and love is surely clear in the sex act. Every kind of mythology relates the sex act itself to dying, and every therapist comes to see the relationship ever more clearly through his patients. The sexual revolution thus begins with an assault on a godly, loving, marital relationship and an espousal of lawless sex. Moreover, it is insisted that sexuality be cultivated from the earliest years. Thus, in May 1967... The American Psychological Association's annual convention in Washington, D.C. heard Dr. Robert A. Harper, a local psychologist, advocate sex playpens for nursery school children to prevent sexual hang-ups in adulthood. And Dr. Harold Greenwood from New York blames the first signs of sexual anxiety on a mother's removal of a child's hand from his sex organs while diapering him. Presumably, no mothers were present to remind the doctor of the necessity of removing those infant hands before the area can be talc-dusted and the diaper firmly pinned in place. However, all sexual relations involving another person mean some kind of tie to or dependence on that other person. This to a man or a woman seeking to be his own god is the ultimate in frustration. 
Not surprisingly, the most recent definition of perfect sex is masturbation. Listen to Dr. Leslie H. Faber, distinguished Washington, D.C. psychologist. According to the laboratory, there is only one perfect orgasm, if by perfect we mean wholly subject to its owner's will, wholly indifferent to human contingency or context. Clearly, the perfect orgasm is the orgasm achieved on one's own. No other consummation offers such certainty and moreover avoids the messiness that attends human affairs. Nor should we be too surprised if such solitary pleasure becomes the ideal by which all mutual sex is measured. The attempt of man to become his own god reduces him to this absurdity. Man's desire for aseity leads to his isolation from God and man, and his fear of death leads him to a retreat from life and love. Man the sinner, in revolution against God, revolts against everything which might tie him to anyone else, lest he be subject to the influences of others and thereby lose something of his claim to divinity. The more man isolates himself from God and responsibility, from love and community, the more prone he becomes to every influence that comes his way. Indians who had never been exposed to measles found it a killing disease, whereas their white neighbors regarded it as a routine ailment of children. The most impressionable people are those who are most rootless. Atheistic intellectuals are more prone to accept propaganda and to be hypnotized than are peasants. Revolutionists are thus almost always rootless intellectuals who are easily swayed and who readily sway other men like themselves. Kaiser noted the radical susceptibility of the assassin of Robert F. Kennedy, Saran Saran, to influence. Saran was a tabula rasa upon which ideas could be imposed with ease, or better, a piece of videotape on which certain images could be electronically imprinted and certain sounds electronically etched. Man the sinner, as he seeks to be his own god and universe, becomes an open universe to every idea or influence which is lawless and anti-god. At the same time, he becomes an empty universe, in that, by denying God, he has implicitly denied all reality, since God is the creator of all things. He complains, therefore, of a radical emptiness or deadness, and his every attempt to fill it by his own fiat will is doomed to frustration and an intensification of his inner death. Dying thou shalt die is his sentence. The destiny of revolutionary man is to hunger for life and to know that, in spite of all, death is his future. Death is for him the great enemy, but he longs for death also, because all of life betrays him in his pretended divinity. The terrors of death begin not beyond the grave, but long before it, and they are identical increasingly with the facts of life for revolutionary man. <laughs>